We have a first timer here on Oscar Sunday, Dr. Strangelove, released at the very beginning of 1964, famous dumpuary area of uh, the movie industry. The films we talked about prior to this episode, Pulp Fiction came out in October, Defy Bloods came out this past June on Netflix, Rocky came out in December, In the Bedroom came out in November, and The Great Dictator came out in October. Huh. <laughs> very interesting. Uh, this definitely raised my eyebrow when we were. You know, we chose Dr. Strangelove for this episode, episode six of Oscar Sunday. And I saw that it came out in January of 1964, which is so interesting because that's 16 months before the 37th Academy Awards. Um, I, I find that to be interesting because dumpuary is, you know, a known term, right? Not just, yeah. to, not just to film buffs, but to people over the place. So without further ado, Dr. Strangelove is going to be our topic today. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Zagari. All right, my man, we got Dr. Strangelove, a Kubrick classic from, again, 1964. We're going to be talking about the 37th Academy Awards that occurred in 1965, uh, April 5th of 1965. Again, 16 months after Dr. Strangelove came out. So I want to explain a little bit about that. Dr. Strangelove, uh, famously uh, one of Kubrick's you know, masterpieces. He has a few, depending on how you look at him as a director. Here at Filmgasm Productions, we find him to be one of the most gifted directors of all time. Yeah. And Strangelove is definitely one of his best movies. It was an easy pick for 1964, but there are also, there are also some great movies from that year. Uh, man, this is a fascinating story. The reason that this movie came out in January is because Kubrick uh, found out that there was going to be another movie coming out in 1964 called Failsafe, directed by the great Sidney Lumet, um, who, you know, Lumet's uh, very much a director who likes to take a script and like, right, kind of do some stuff with it. And Kubrick is a guy, I want total control. Um, I, want every, I want everything to be mine. Um, so in 1963, Entertainment Corporation of America purchased the rights to Failsafe. And Kubrick just didn't, you know, wasn't cool with that. He, uh, at this point, will bring up the book Red Alert, which I believe came out, is it 1958? Is that yeah. right? 58. Yeah. And this is a book that Kubrick bought, bought the rights to, creative rights to to make Dr. Strangelove. Um, and he felt that the movie Failsafe and the source material for that, I cannot remember what book that is. Uh, it's right here. Hold on. He felt that there were a lot of similarities between these two books, Kubrick did, and felt that there was going to be a lot of similarities, therefore, within the movie Failsafe, which was coming out in the same year, scheduled to come out the same year. I cannot find what this book was called. Uh, it was just Failsafe. Okay. Yes. Yeah, the same. Yeah. Same name. Same name. Also. Yeah. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. So you have Kubrick who's saying this movie, this book is way too similar to what we're already trying to do. So he's like, all right, I'm going to file a fucking lawsuit because <laughs> I'm, because I'm Stanley Kubrick. This is, this is how I'm going to roll. I'm going to have total control. And my movie is going to be going to be King. <laughs> so long story short, Stanley Kubrick's movie, Dr. Strangelove, comes out in January. Failsafe comes out in October. 
<laughs> and 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 doesn't do nearly nearly as well in the box office. So Kubrick is kind of biting the bullet there by saying, "I'm going to have my movie come out first because typically with the Oscars, you know, the Oscar bait is normally you know movies that come out in the summer, late summer or fall, right? Yeah. Not with it. Not in this case. You know, Strange Love made the full lap, kept going, and uh, made some noise at the 37th Academy Awards with five nominations. Jeez, Louise. Uh, it, it is crazy. I, I want to bring you in, Connor, to hear your thoughts on this debacle. <laughs> well, uh, just insanity. Kubrick, knew, he didn't give a fuck about the Oscars. He didn't care about awards. All he cared about was the product and the yeah, legacy yes. of the product. Legacy, so, yes. I think this, was, this had nothing to do with the Oscars in his eyes. In his eyes, it was, I am going to beat this race. I'm going to win this. Y- yes. Yeah. And legacy, I mean, that guy acted, and legacy and financially. And this yes. was prior to, you know, I think the movie that, this was the movie I think that really put him on like Hollywood's radar as like a mastermind. This and then following it with 2001 and then A Clockwork Orange, like this guy just kept going. But he acted like king shit of fuck mountain from the very beginning. <laughs> Kubrick yeah, yes, acted yes. the way he was because that's just who he was. Like Hollywood didn't, cha- didn't change him, if anything. It just kind of gave him just like, it made who he was justified. And, uh, I mean, he's not a very, you know, he's known for being a, like a horrible person to, you know, take orders from, and his manipulation is known throughout Hollywood. But the product, man, <laughs> I mean, the films are so incredible and timeless and legendary. And, uh, yeah, I think it makes perfect sense that he did what he did because that's exactly what I think he would have done in that situation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was not necessarily surprised by it. I was just like, oh my gosh, he really went there. You know, he it's a did crazy it. uh, story, but it is not a shock. <laughs> and and, and I, I actually have seen Failsafe. I love Sidney Lumet as a director. Yeah. I, think he, I think he's a genius. And Failsafe is very, very intense. And there's times where it's just so close, you know, like in your face. The, the cinematography is really what stands out to me there. But I, but I understand. I understand. I've not read either book, but I understand where Kubrick is coming from. Uh, I just, I find it so funny that this movie came out, uh, Failsafe came out like nine months after. <laughs> and people are still talking about Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And I, I, I know plenty of, plenty of um, you know, there's, there's film scholars out there who, who would bring up Failsafe as one of the movies of 1964 that should have been up. Because uh, it, it is a, it is a, I think you would like it a lot, Connor. I think it's a, it's a strong movie. but you know, the topic here today is Dr. Strangelove, right? Um, uh, when was the first time you saw this movie? I saw this for the first time about 10 years ago. Okay. I, okay. I hadn't really explored Kubrick. I had only seen The Shining and I had heard this was funny. So I watched it and I didn't really get it at the time. I was still kind of, you know, I was fairly young. I wasn't really, you know, I hadn't seen any of the actors before, so I didn't really know what was the deal. I That's watched a big it deal. years later in my, uh, the Kubrick class I took in college, and I fell in love. I was like, this movie's fucking awesome. This is hilarious. I love all these people. Like, where has this been all my life? So I've stayed pretty much with that mentality, and I, I loved it even more watching it for the show. Hell yeah, dude. That's fantastic. I, I, I haven't been – I, I didn't watch it that, that long ago. Um, as you know, I've, there's, there's certain – directors and whatnot that i just didn't tap into till more recently and i would say maybe three or four years ago is the first time i saw strange love and i 
I, I also hadn't seen these guys a ton, you know, Peter Sellers <laughs> and, you know, Sterling Hayden, who I, I fell in love with from the killing. Um, yeah. another, another one of Kubrick's masterpieces, one of my favorite Kubrick movies. Um, it definitely helps if you just tack on more years, right? When you watch a movie like Dr. Strangelove, which is, you know, this just brilliant satire, which is fun because we did di- great dictator last week, you know, uh, to follow that up with another political satire is, is fun, but uh, definitely a much different movie focusing on much different things. Uh, I, I find it to be not just hilarious, but a masterclass in directing, a masterclass in cinematography. And when I rewatched this time, it was just my second, re- second time seeing it ever. Um, you know, I was like, yeah, I had texted you. I was like, yeah, this is a masterpiece. I, I kind of forgot how wonderful every single beat is, um, how Peter Sellers is just fucking mind blowing. Um, those are, those are things that definitely come with, uh, you know, the movie, movie seasoning, you know, as you start watching more stuff. So yeah, I love that you bring that up. And, uh, I think I said this was up for five, but it was actually up for four. Yeah. Uh, didn't, didn't, did not win anything, but there are four, this has happened with us, uh, <laughs> with the past three episodes, four important ones. Yeah. Um, in the bedroom also uh, was up for five and didn't win anything, but there are five important ones. Um, and then same thing last week at the great dictator, right? Whereas up for these big time awards just didn't win. Same thing here. Dr. Strangelove. I, I am going to go ahead and say it. I disagree. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this movie has some wonderful things um, going on in it. And uh, we're definitely going to get into those, those things within the plot later on, but um, we're going to start with the first category, which would be screenplay. Uh, you want to name off those uh, nominees there, Connor? Screenplay. Best Adapted Screenplay. We have Zorba the Greek by Michael Kakayanis, My Fair Lady by Alan J. Lerner, Mary Poppins by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti, Dr. Strangelove by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, and the winner, Beckett by Edward Anhalt. What do you notice? Hmm? What do you notice right away? Um, with those five, those are the best picture nominees. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Through and through. Those are the exact five that were up for best picture. Yeah. Uh, wow. We, um, got to see all of these except for Zorba the Greek. Yes. Uh, man, I watched Beckett just not that long ago today. <laughs> we, we, we really try to do our homework for this one because, uh, 1964 is a very strange year when you look at it. Um, do you agree with this one? Beckett's a strong movie. Do you agree with this? screenplay uh, Beckett was was a fantastic movie it was a very interesting yeah. story very layered uh Dr. Strangelove is brilliantly written as well all of these are I don't this is a toughie because these yeah, are very all tough. pretty like super like well-written stories I think I will give it to Beckett I, I I'll zag and goes I gotta go Strangelove I think there's in particular, you know, there's scenes at the Pentagon that are just like, oh my gosh, like this is <laughs> genius, genius writing, you know? Uh, yeah. The thing yeah, is, yeah, but, but when it comes great. to Strange Love, I think the reason I give it to, uh, give screenplay to Beckett is because Peter Sellers improvised a lot of his lines. Okay. So a, a lot of the genius of this film is, it comes from Peter Sellers just thinking off the cuff. Well, we'll be bringing that up very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, yeah, like I said, these next three are, you know, these are massive categories. Um, I mean, best director. This is 
a group that is the same five again. <laughs> oh, I man, got, you want to name them off? Go ahead. Michael K- uh, Kakayanis for Zorba the Greek, Robert Stevenson for Mary Poppins, Stanley Kubrick for Dr. Strangelove, Peter Glenville for Beckett, and the winner, George Cooker for My Fair Lady. Man. George Cooker also directed The Philadelphia Story, which we talked about last week a bit. Wow, how about that? 24 <laughs> years prior. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, Still got it. Director 100% goes to Kubrick, in my opinion. Hands down. Not yeah. even close. Not, <laughs> Not even, even close. close. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. He, it, what's, what's like amazing about this is with the general uh, movie fan – you would look at those names and you'd be like, well, I'm not quite sure who they are, but I know who Stanley Kubrick is because, you know, he's Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, no, 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 it's true here. It's true. Um, I can't speak for Zorba the Greek. Uh, I know your grandmother and my mother are both fans of that one. I yeah. do want to see that at some point. Yes. Um, I've heard it's quite funny. So I would love to see that. But yeah, I just uh, Kubrick is doing some <laughs> masterclass stuff. Yes, indeed. And um, for those of you who may not know, I know Beckett was a film that I had never heard of prior to checking these out. Beckett is a 1964 historical drama starring Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. And it's about the relationship between King Henry II and his best friend turned arch rival, Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury. It's a very involved drama, very layered, very poignant and extremely well acted. And I highly recommend it. It's a hidden gem that really deserves more attention and more acclaim kind of got lost in the 60s like a lot of these films you know dr strange love mary poppins my, my fair lady these have you know lived on beckett kind of stayed behind yeah yeah for sure there's definitely a a three-headed monster here yeah. i would love to do <laughs> for, beckett on its own in the future on the show yeah yeah we we pointed out that we'll last week we pointed out how we want to do uh, rebecca on its own and philadelphia story on its own because they were both were both great both nominated for best picture yeah. uh but you know, yeah, we we jump we jump decade to decade, you know, uh, randomly. Uh, next week, uh, we'll let you know about that one uh, later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, it's it's got to be Kubrick for director. Yep. And George Cooker, My Fair Lady, is very well directed, but it doesn't have like a style to it. You know, Kubrick was very, very stylistic. Like we know exactly what a Kubrick film looks like. Yeah. George, George uh, My Fair Lady, I've, I, I've seen stuff like that before, yeah. It's very, it looks like a play because it was a play. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, I think Kubrick. <laughs> for any of his films, I think this was, a, like, this in 2001 are probably the two he should have taken it for. For a director? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You can go down the line and make an argument for so many of them. There's just, uh, it, the, he, yeah, he has a certain filmography that's just, of a different class, yeah. For sure. That takes us to Best Actor. So Here we go. Best Actor. We have Peter Sellers for Dr. Strangelove, Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek, Peter O'Toole for Beckett, Richard Burton for Beckett, and the winner, Rex Harrison for My Fair Lady. Now, Rex Harrison is lights out in My Fair Lady. He is hilarious. He's sarcastic. He's great. But Peter Sellers is in a fucking masterclass all his own in this film. He plays, he plays Dr. Strangelove, he plays President Muffley, and he plays Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. Three distinct, very different characters. That is unbelievable. And the fact that he did not take this home is fucking robbery. <laughs> yeah, I think it's high, fucking highway robbery. I love, seeing, I love seeing a film have two nominations for best actor that's really cool because that that means two guys just 
fucking went for it uh, yeah. in the same film. But but come on, man, Peter Sellers, what he's doing. Uh, this is this is something that I noticed on the rewatch where I was like, holy shit, Peter Sellers. I know who he is. I know I know what's going on. I know what he's capable of, and I see exactly what he's doing with each character. And holy hell, this guy, <laughs> this guy, to me, from what I've seen in the '60s, is, is my favorite performance of the '60s, not just 1964. Yeah, definitely an argument could be made. I mean, he is, he's on a different level and he's hilarious in all three of those roles. Yeah, and man. It's just, yeah, unbelievable. It's fantastic. And if you're not really familiar with Peter Sellers, you could be fooled into thinking it's three different actors. Uh, 100%. 100%. Especially the president, man. Like, what in the hell? God. <laughs> shit should have been up for fucking best makeup. Come on. It's fantastic. Yeah, this movie really, like, I can't believe it didn't get anything. <laughs> yeah it was just like yeah yeah it's one of those you know again we've this has been a theme the past this is the third week now of doing a film that just didn't quite you know grab it yeah. <laughs> and that that takes us to best picture zorba the greek mary poppins dr strangelove beckett and the winner was my fair lady 1964's best picture no <laughs> i don't think i don't think so my fair lady's good it ain't great i think that like I wouldn't watch it again. I don't think I thought it was cute, but well, okay. Well, here's the thing about my fair lady is it's two hours and 50 minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, that's tough for me to say my favorite movie ever is, you know, Magnolia. That's about three hours, True. but this, this movie, my fair lady is a jaunt. It's like a, it's like a marathon. You, um, you're rewarded along the way for sure. Great performances and some very funny dialogue. But again, when you feel like, like you said, it's, you know, cause it's a play. You feel like sometimes I've been here before. It's just like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't need to rewatch this a bunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, Mary Poppins on the other hand is a very, very fun and a movie that you can introduce to your children sort of thing. Uh, yeah. It's just lovely and it just pops so much. And it's just, it's amazing that Disney, you know, <laughs> is still Disney, you know, still has these Oscar nominations all the way from, all the way back then to now, man, they just keep, keep turning out all these kinds of different films that, that get, make noise. Mary Poppins is a very personal film for me. I grew up with it. I watched it with my grandma a lot. It's so enduring and it's so sweet and it's so charming and it's so just perfect that, ah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Beckett, on the other hand, is a new, a fairly new gem. Uh, in our opinion, uh, to, new to us. For us, yeah. That I think any other year would have really stood a chance. It's got, you know, two legendary performers in Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, not to mention John Gielgud as the King of France. And it's just such a exciting and risky drama because it very much deals with, you know, homosexuality in a smart way. That Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that Henry loved Thomas Beckett more than a more than a friend. Yeah, but he couldn't. You know, he, in the sixties, homosexuality was still illegal, and they couldn't out you know, out come out and say what this movie was about. So he had to kind of dance around it, like uh, like the Maltese Falcon. And uh, I thought the end result was fucking brilliant, but it's up against some incredible films that I per, are personal favorites of mine. So. In the end, I am going to have to give it to Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, me too. I, yeah. This is, you know, someone can make the argument that this is Kubrick's greatest film. 
it, it just it's it's wrapped up so nicely. It's it, it's tight. It it's abrupt and has again has these performances that are so fucking good. But besides Peter Sellers, who who you know, I mean, I, personally Sterling Hayden, I just I adore that guy. I think he has when he's got the cigar in his mouth. I, yeah, I can't look away from that guy. He's like a fucking Bond villain in this movie. Dude, yeah. <laughs> um, he really did. He single-handedly destroyed the world. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Um, my personal favorite is George C. Scott as Buck Turgeson. I mean, he's yes. fucking insane. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Crazy shit he says in this movie. Yeah, oh. see, I didn't, you know, I hadn't, you know, when I first saw Strange Love, I hadn't seen Pat, and I hadn't watched some George C. Scott stuff. You know, I didn't know what he was capable of. And now I watch it, and I'm like, oh, my God, that guy is going for it, dude. Like, yeah, so it's it, – it, Strangelove is a a film I think you need some seasoning to really appreciate. I think yeah. that's uh, going to be a theme here, whereas My Fair Lady and Mary Poppins, I, I think a lot of people are just going to enjoy just because the the way it looks, the colors, the yeah. kind of G-rated material, you know, where it's just kind of for everybody. Strange Love is very, it's very smart, it's whippy, whip fast, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, it's, I think a lot of this comes down to personal preference. I mean, if you are a, you know, diehard fan of musicals, you know, you're going to fucking adore My Fair Lady and Mary Poppins. But if you love, you know, political satire and, you know, a director like Kubrick, Dr. Strange Love is your cup of tea. So, yeah, man. it's, you know, like, like, you know, film in general, it's really up to the viewer. I mean, we just give our two cents. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, there's one thing about Julie Andrews that I have to point out, and it's that your grandmother told me very convincingly, Julie Andrews is the queen. (laughs) And I was like, all right, I'm not going to argue. I can't, I think I was talking about Hepburn and I was just saying how, how awesome she is. And she's like, yeah, but Julie Andrews is the queen. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. I was convinced. Well, there's a reason she told you that because My Fair Lady was Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews on Broadway. They made it famous. When they decided to make the movie, Rex Harrison was an established film actor already, and they decided to go with him and Audrey Hepburn as a surefire win instead of Julie Andrews, who had never done film before. So she got cut out of her like, tentpole performance. That same year, Disney hired her as Mary Poppins, and she walked home with the best actress that year. Yes, she did against Anne Bancroft, Sophia Loren, Debbie Reynolds, and Kim Stanley. You know, just a a nice, nice, nice group there. <laughs> Julie Andrews comes out on top. Hepburn she, wasn't even nominated. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to look at. She Hepburn, whether depending on how you look at it, she she could be overacting in some people's eyes um, in My Fair Lady, or it, or it could be right up your alley depending on how you look at it. Well, I think the fact that she didn't sing cuts her out for me. That's yeah, a big no-no for me when it comes to if you're going to act in a musical, learn to sing. <laughs> yes, which which don't worry, one day we will bring up the infamous win that Rami Malek stole, straight up stole from Christian Bale. Mm. Ah, we will talk about that one day, my friend. <laughs> that has come up a lot randomly in various episodes. Well, because it's I, I you know you look at those 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 ones that get stolen right. Uh, yeah, Rex Harrison over Peter Sellers. Okay. All right. All right. But and that's nothing against Rex Harrison's performance. He's, he's hilarious in My Fair Lady. Yeah. But oh, Peter yeah. Sellers was better. And that's really 100%. Better. 100%. That's what um, it's all about. When it comes to, to awards that like, we think this should have been up for, I absolutely would give George C. Scott Best Supporting Actor for this. 
and Sterling Hayden. Well, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> True. But I would give the award to Oh, like straight that's up. Fair. Yeah, that, that's fair. He, he is, yeah, he's going for in that, in this movie. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, I think that I, you had mentioned, uh, well, makeup, I think. Yeah. Makeup just because of what, you know, Peter Sellers, but, but I, I my main thing is cinematography. It's yeah. not enough. It's not up for that. You got My Fair Lady, Beckett, Cheyenne Autumn, Mary Poppins, and the unsinkable Molly Brown. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. And the makeup award didn't exist until 1980 anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Those are, those, are the, those are little things we'll find out as we do this. Is like what awards get added on, what are you taken away. Amazing. But I see one film that I want to bring up because we're talking about 1964, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's in your Hall of Tens. Yeah. And it has something to do with James Bond. Oh, does it now? <laughs> uh, yes. Best sound effects. Goldfinger. Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> Explain yourself. Why is that in your Hall of Tens? I would love to hear. I've seen it. It's great. Explain. Goldfinger is the movie that turned the James Bond series into the James Bond franchise. It's the movie that established James Bond as a recurring film franchise that was going to last forever. It, you know, Dr. No was fantastic. From Russia with Love was fantastic. Goldfinger is fucking lights out. <laughs> Top and it five still blind. holds up. It's got, you know, the campy villain. It's got the cool gadgets. It's got the ridiculously over-the-top Bond girl named, I swear to God, Pussy Galore. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit, Dated in times. Uh, I don't want to bring that up right now because that's going to take us into a whole new area. But yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, we'll do that at some other point. Yeah, Goldfinger is is an absolute classic to me. It it, it was also the first Bond theme we really got. Uh, yeah, there's just so much about Goldfinger that established the Bond franchise, and uh, yeah, one of my favorites. Probably my favorite oh, yeah. of that year. I was just about to say, is it? Do you like this or Strange Love better? And <laughs> There you yeah, go. You like you like Goldfinger a little bit better. How about Fistful of Dollars? Fistful of Dollars is fucking awesome. That's a great <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, that's that's a badass movie. Have you seen uh the whole Dollars trilogy? Hell yeah. Not not in a while, but yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I, Same here. It's been a while. Yeah, but, you, uh, you know, we've talked about Clint Eastwood. It's you know, it's uh he's a polarizing guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, but yeah, he was making the best westerns of his age. And <laughs> him and Sergio Leone were fucking amazing. Yeah, which which I do want to bring up um you you brought up Sergio Leone, a composer that we we I don't think have brought up since he passed away. Mm, yeah. Our boy Inyo. Um Inyo Morricone. Ah, oh, man. So frustrating. You, you bring up the, that movie. So I think of the good, bad, and the ugly, you know, <laughs> um, so sad, you know, a, a guy who's just a Titan, a guy that we, ha- he's been involved with so many movies. You and I just adore. Yeah. Uh, so, so many movies that Americans and people all over the world adore because they're great films and he adds to them so, so much. Yeah. Really, really frustrating. I, 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 I we're both sorry. We didn't bring up, bring that up sooner. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, I can't believe he won his. He only won one Oscar in his career, and it was in 2015 for the Hate. I know, I know. Which is genius work. That movie has some awesome technical stuff. But yeah, I, uh, yeah, wow. I mean, <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West, The Untouchables, The Mission, The Thing. I mean, for fuck's sake. 
<laughs> this guy, his soundtracks were just, you know, art. Yeah. The, the man yes. was a genius. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, isn't it great that a guy, like you bring up the thing I love, you know, thinking about him and Carpenter, like is just this wonderful combination of creators. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he's going to be dearly missed, man. Um, you know, and people are like, well, you know, he lived a long life. It's like, yeah, but even then, you know, he's just, you never know if there's going to be more out of him. You know, he, he's just a, an amazing artist. Yeah. Did the hateful eight in his late eighties. I mean, exactly. Exactly. To show that he could fucking bring it. Yeah. Yeah. RIP. Rest in peace, Mr. Morricone. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's funny. We talked about fistful of dollars and got to, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> um, I think that about wraps us up for the uh, Oscar side of Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, other than the fact that it was hosted by the 37th Academy Awards were hosted by Bob Hope. Bob Hope. Just want, just want to bring that up, how random that is. And, and you got, you, you pointed out that Julie Andrews won. Not only, not only did she win, but Mary Poppins, you know, ran the table and was up for 13 <laughs> Oscars this year. Wow. Oh, yeah. That took home best song, uh, best score, and uh, best visual effects. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, fantastic. It was a clean sweep. Well, not a clean sweep, but it was a close sweep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my Fair Lady, you know, won eight, but they just weren't nominated for as much. So it's just a, it's a, it's an amazing oh. year with some titans. And film editing. Forgot about that one. But, uh, yeah, well-deserved. We'll do Mary Poppins as its own. Down the road, I'm sure. Always, yeah. We'll always do these. Yeah, like we both admitted that we probably don't want to rewatch My Fair Lady anytime soon. So <laughs> we'll save that. We'll save that for later, later down the road. Yeah, give it a couple years. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We intend on. If you think about it, you know, it's uh, you know, this could go on forever because the Oscars are hopefully going to be going on forever. Um, we, Connor and I, both love the Oscars because it represents movies and honors movies whether they make shitty decisions or not, <laughs> uh, we, we, we hope they change and hope they make the right decisions. And that's part of what this show's about. Uh, I guess we'll get into the uh, strange love plot here because it's, um, it's a fascinating movie. <laughs> First up, I want to talk a little bit about Stanley Kubrick. And oh, well, yeah, I mean, anytime you want to do that, man, go, go ahead. Yeah. So on the Filmgasm podcast, we have done so far only one movie twice, and that is The Shining. <laughs> Good point. I forgot it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Kubrick, we, we started that, ser- that series out, that show with The Shining, and then that was our one-year anniversary special, was revisiting The Shining. Because Kubrick is a titan, and his films are going to last till the end of time <laughs> because of the care and obsession that he put into them. And, uh, yeah, so what would you say if you had to pick are, like, your top three oh, favorite Kubrick's. God. Um, <laughs> On oh the spot. God. The, Sh- the Shining is 100% my favorite. Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah, that, always. That's going to be the case. Um, oh, after that, it's like Jesus H. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really, really like Dr. Strangelove. I really, really like Clockwork Orange. Um, I really like The Killing. Really like The Killing. Um, wow, man. That's really hard. I'd probably say The Shining 1, Clockwork 2, Full Metal Jacket 3. 
Uh, I don't know, man. The killing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What about you? Uh, number one, The Shining. Number two, Doctor Strange Love. Okay. And number three, Paths of Glory. Oh God! Oh, oh yeah, that is <laughs> such a fantastic movie. And, uh, I don't think it was up oh. for any Oscars, so I don't know how we're going to be able to do that on either show. But I'd love to get Paths of Glory in here sometime. Yeah, and and I I everyone I, I have loved everything he's done. I uh, I know you're not a big fan of a couple. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple I have problems with. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. That's fair. Definitely his last one. <laughs> There's no director that I think makes consistently 100% flawless work. I think there's some great filmmakers out there, but I don't think anybody is perfect. Has ever been perfect, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's yeah, got just, a dud. I just think Kubrick's batting average is really fucking high. It's yeah. really good. It's, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's about as good as it can get for a, 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 a uh, director that ran from the 50s to the late 90s. You know, so, yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, pretty astonishing. Uh, um, You've seen The Killing, right? Yes. I've seen everything um, except uh, Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. Okay. Killer's Kiss is the only one I haven't seen. I watched Fear and Desire the same day I watched The Killing for the first time. I watched them back to back. One of the best double features I've ever done in my life. <laughs> nice. uh, the, the, fi- the 50s Kubrick. Yeah. Just, yeah, I adore him. I think he's, uh, yeah, one of the titans. I think he's one of the titans of cinema, period, like foreign, American, anything. I think he... Can, he can do anything he wants. And, and what I think is most powerful about his films is the rewatchability of them. Yes. Is, is how you can, with, with fans like you and I, I mean, we talked about Quentin Tarantino plenty on film guys. And now this podcast is that that rewatchability is so important for people like you and I fans like you and I, and there's so many fans like us who, who get obsessed with a piece of art. Like it's a like it's an album. They're like I gotta I gotta fucking find the ins and outs of this. I gotta. Yeah. And Kubrick did that over and over and over. He would create a piece that you would have you would you were required to watch multiple times to understand the weight. In case in point is The Shining, right? Is the entire world had no idea what they were seeing in 1980. It took it took it took a while for people to get it. And uh, I think that's his greatest quality as a filmmaker is the rewatchability of his films because they're not only like devastating and super like, whoa, super dramatic at times. They're fucking funny and they keep you on your toes and they constantly refuse to let you, you know, sit or relax no matter what the content is. And that I, I, I just respect that so much. Now off the screen, I can't speak for the guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, we, we've heard plenty of stories. Um, yeah. Of his, his tenacious style, uh, his controlling style. But, but as far, like you said, as far as the, the art goes, whew, speaks for itself. Yes, indeed. We're, there's a lot of his films we're going to do on this show. I, I'm looking forward to one day doing Barry Lyndon. That'll be oh, fun. Oh my God, 1975. How can we forget? 1975 <laughs> is one of, the, one of the best years, right? I would love to do Barry Lyndon because we've, uh, any film guys and listeners would maybe know that we've already done Jaws. Yeah, uh, and we've already done one flew the cuckoo's nest on the Filmgasm podcast, so yes. it'd be a great it'd be a great way to kind of round out that year with Barry Lyndon. Which, fuck, you can argue that it's just as good as those two, man. Goddamn, <laughs> I know the guy was on you know a different level. He really was. And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Doctor Strangelove has an IMDb score of eight point four, Rotten Tomato score of ninety eight percent. 
deserves that score big time. And uh, before we get into the plot, I want to tell my favorite story I read in the trivia about this film. So Let's hear it. this film was so strong and so well done that it changed U.S. government policy <laughs> to ensure that something like this could never actually happen, that a renegade general could never launch a nuclear bomb at some country and start a global catastrophe. So, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Kubrick was so good with his attention to detail, he changed U.S. nuclear war policy. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole thing is like, you, you, I, I've read reviews where people are like, don't be fooled by satire that how how honest and true this film is yeah which which is which is yeah it's like fucking devastating but it's hilarious at the same time his ability to his ability to punch you in the face kubrick and make you laugh is like what (laughs) what are we what are we doing here (laughs) way he portrays america's leadership is fucking it's terrifying but extremely accurate these are the warmongered assholes who were you know leading our country in the cold war the people who thought you know Let's I, give me an excuse. I want to launch a nuke at your red commie ass. Like that's what it was yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. <laughs> All right. With that, let's go into the story of Dr. Strangelove. Hell yeah. <laughs> so we start at Burpleson U.S. Air Force Base, where the eccentric Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden. I oh. love everybody's name in this film. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Every little thing. <laughs> He orders 34 nuclear-armed B-52 bombers to go past their fail-safe points and enter Soviet airspace. He tells the personnel on base that the U.S. and Russia have entered a shooting war. He's lying. He has taken it upon himself to send nuclear warheads to Russia because he believes that the Russians are close to, quote, um sapping and impurifying all of our precious bodily fluids. Something that comes up a lot in this film. It's such a strange thing to say. Bodily fluids. But we will get into that. Uh, We then go to the war room at the Pentagon, where we meet Air Force General Buck Turgeson, played by George C. Scott. He gets called from the bathroom. Uh, He's sleeping with his secretary. And she answers the phone, and he's like, tell him to hang up. He's like, she says, it's urgent. And he's like, what? They're like, well, apparently we launched nuclear weapons at Russia. He's like, give me the phone. <laughs> like, he doesn't take it seriously in the slightest. <laughs> he's like, all right, I'll go down to the war room. But he's like, I love when he slaps his belly. He's like, here's what you got to do. <laughs> it's just so he's, – he's the exact opposite of Patton in this movie. He's, he's the anti-Patton. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's why I brought that exact performance up because it's like, if you see that and you're like, oh, this is 1970 gem, that one best picture, and you're like, okay, this is the idea that people have of George C. Scott. And then you watch Dr. Strangelove from six years prior, and you're like, oh, man, <laughs> this is great. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> he heads down to the war room and briefs President Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers about the attack that General Ripper has ordered. And what he did was initiated Plan R, which is an emergency war plan that subverts presidential authority and enables a senior officer to launch a retaliation strike against the Soviets if the chain of command has been altered, as in the president has been killed and it 
or you know, it's a sneak attack. Basically, it's a. T- I can't believe this was approved, and I. It makes me think that since they changed real policy, that this was a fucking thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. All the general had to do was lie convincingly, and he could completely destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, the fact that this teeters with like more documentary than satire is like, oh fuck. Yeah. During all this. Turgeson's reading this off like it's a laundry list and the president's like, what is happening? Like, he gets really nervous and Turgeson's like, well, I mean, you know, I don't think we should, he's like, I don't think we should judge an entire program on the actions of just one man, sir. (laughs) 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 So, uh, his hair, his fucking hair. (laughs) It's great. My God. Goddamn Buzz Lightyear looking fucker. <laughs> so Plan R was also intended to discourage the Soviets from launching a decapitation strike against the president. And uh, also he can't, the president can't override this because only Ripper has the, the launch, the, um, the, the abort code. And if it doesn't come from him, they won't answer the phones on the plane. It's, it's terrifying because I feel like this kind of clusterfuck very easily could have happened in the Cold War. I mean, all the shit that was being thrown at the Russians and at us, just the back and forth, the, you know, the dick measuring that went on for 30 years. I'm amazed that something like this didn't happen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> so Turgeson has a solution and it's to take advantage of the situation and launch a full-scale attack at Soviet Russia. <laughs> he believes that if the United States is in a superior strategic position and they strike first, we would obliterate 90% of their missiles before they could retaliate, resulting in a victory for the U.S. with an, a quote-unquote acceptable casualty margin of 20 million people. That's, that's, that's the best scenario that Turgeson comes up with. He's like, and he's proud of this. He's like, no, we would win, and only twenty million people would would die. There you go. Like, man, that's a good, that's a that's a good chess move right there. Yeah. And uh, Muffley's re- response is, "I will not be known as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler." And Turgeson's response is, "Well, sir, I mean, probably be best if you were less concerned about the <laughs> about the history books than you were with the American people." <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> so Muffley's like, no, we're done with this. And it calls the uh he gets the Soviet ambassador to the uh war room. <laughs> and um Turgeson's like, You're gonna let him in here? He's gonna see the big board. Like, he's gonna know what we're up to. And <laughs> the big board. That's the idea. We're trying to stop a war here. <laughs> the ambassador comes in and Turgeson's immediately like, you fucking red commie bastard. <laughs> like, it's just immediately. And uh, he has, uh, Muffley has him call the Soviet premier uh, kiss off. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's, the more I talk about this, like, it really was clearly influenced by the great dictator. There's so much in here. that <laughs> For sure. For sure, every satire movie, man. We timed these so well. Um, I had um, no idea. Yeah, it just worked out like that. So, um, 
he gets he's trying to call Kiss off, and uh, <laughs> Turgeson attacks the the uh, the ambassador and tries to plant the camera on him, and they start fighting. And Muffley walks over to them and says one of the most like one of the best movie quotes of all time. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> it's in like a bunch of countdowns on like greatest movie quotes of all time. And it deservedly yes. should be. Yeah, this this movie altogether is ranked number 67 greatest movie of all time in IMDb. That's pretty amazing. That is. That's pretty amazing. And, you know, it's on countless best of all time. Lists. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many lists that call it the funniest movie of all time. But, yeah, it's in the National yeah. Film Registry. Like yeah, this is a this is a landmark film. <laughs> and, uh, it's a Criterion selected, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah. During all this, we see the crew of one of these bombers getting this code and thinking like that can't be what it's supposed to be. <laughs> like I mean, these guys are basically told, "All right, war, attack Russia." That's not you know your usual day on the job. <laughs> so they want confirmation. They're like, uh, "Sir, can you look at this?" And he's like, "Well, what is it? It's Slim Pickens." playing this like good old boy bomber b- bomber pilot cowboy hat and everything and he's like are you sure it says that you better call and get confirmation so they're like we like if we're gonna do this we need to know like for sure these are the orders and i like that they you know they double triple check but unfortunately you know later on their radio gets busted and they don't get the code it's yes everything that had to go wrong for what ended up happening it's, it's a fucking crazy domino effect <laughs> so they get kiss off on the line and muffley's like look a crazy general you know hijacked our, our bombers uh you got to shoot down these planes kiss off's like this has got to be a trick he's like, no 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 if this was a trick call you wouldn't have gotten it <laughs> i love that line. if this wasn't a friendly call you wouldn't have gotten the call <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> then we meet Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, an exchange officer from the Royal Air Force. Is this a thing? Like an exchange program? Or did the movie make that up? I'm not sure. There's probably something similar. Maybe. I'm sure with like allied countries. And yeah. uh, he, he's General Ripper's executive officer. And he realizes, after listening to a civilian radio, that there is no Soviet attack. And this was a very... um. You know, intense drill, but Ripper should probably recall those jets. And Ripper's like, yeah, we're not doing that. And Matrix's like, uh, you, sh- you sure? Maybe we should, uh, we should get on that. And Ripper's like, close the door. <laughs> like, he's so serious. That, that shot of like panning up of him with the cigar in his mouth, he looks like, you know, Citizen Kane, like the king of the world. Incredible. Yeah. The man who sold the world right there. Yes. Yes. And his explanation of why he's doing what he's doing is the following. He asks uh, Mandrake what Clemenceau once said about war. What, what, does he know what he said? And Mandrake's like, no, I don't think I do. Ripper says, he said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify 
all of our precious bodily fluids. And Mandrake's like, <laughs> he doesn't really know what to say to that, as you know, you would. <laughs> and he realizes Ripper's on a personal crusade to destroy Soviet Russia personally. And there's yes. no way to change his mind. Mandrake then says that, you know, as his second in command, it is now up to him to issue the recall code, but only Ripper knows the, the code. <laughs> and he locks, the, he locks him in his office. Mandrake tries to convince him to give up the code, and he just keeps rambling about communist uh, fluoridation and how they're poisoning the water and how our precious bodily fluids are at stake. It's, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Oh. And uh, <laughs> over the phone, Kissoff reveals to the Soviet ambassador that they have a bigger problem. The Soviet doomsday device that they've recently built. It'll automatically destroy all life on Earth if a nuclear attack hits the Soviet Union. And they were going to go public with it on Monday. <laughs> but Ripper acted first. And the Doomsday device is operated by a network of computers and has been conceived as the ultimate deterrent. And the president calls Dr. Strangelove, a former Nazi-turned-American scientist who is the head of uh, like weapons development or something. And it's Peter Sellers in a gray wig, dark glasses, one glove, and a wheelchair, and a German accent. And it is pure brilliance it's the weirdest shit his one arm just constantly moves on its own yeah his hair is incredible yeah it's it's one it's one of those things that that i adore when they throw a character like that in there like just to spice everything up you know it makes every it flips the movie on it's you know upside down you're like who is this guy (laughs) this this is the title of the movie what the hell yeah well i love when he'll just inadvertently do a nazi salute yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. God, he's Peter Sellers, man. And George C. Scott is like, who the hell is this guy? Is he a, is he a kraut? And the other guy's like, yeah, his, his name used, like he changed his name when he emigrated. It used to be Merkwer de Gliebet, which is German for Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and Turgeson's just like, well, once a kraut, always a kraut, I guess. Like, he's just the worst. <laughs> and... President asked Strangelove, like, is this possible? Is there a doomsday device? And Strangelove's like, it's not only possible, it's probable. And it is the ultimate deterrent because no one would dare attack a country with a doomsday device. Except for us. (laughs) uh, Strangelove explains that the, the principle behind the doomsday device is that they never have to use it because, you know, nobody would ever want it to go off. And the ambassador starts getting a little, you know, green around the gills, and they all realize, shit, what are we going to do? The, uh, they send paratroopers to Burpleson to arrest General Ripper and demand he give up the code. But Ripper warned his men that the enemy might attack disguised as American soldiers. And so a battle ensues. Ripper rips out a fucking 50 cal machine gun and opens fires on them, demands Mandrake feed him the, the ammo. And the army, they win the battle, they gain access to the base. The American soldiers in the base surrender, and Ripper realizes that he won't survive under torture. And it's amazing that Mandrake didn't just pick up on this, but Ripper wa- puts a towel over his shoulders, walks into the bathroom, and blows his brains out. 
Mandrake is now in command, and he gets arrested by Colonel Bat Guano. God damn it. <laughs> he suspects that Mandrake, whose uniform he doesn't recognize, is leading a mutiny of, quote, deviated preverts. He thinks him and Ripper were preverts. Preverts, yes. And Mandrake's like, look, I'm the only one on Earth who can possibly know the recall code. I need to save the world. Let me talk to the president. And Guano's like, you want to talk to the president? Really? Like, he's so... Like, the way he talks to him is ridiculous. I feel like he's going to whack him with his gun every time. And <laughs> I love when they get to the phone booth and he asks him for change. He's like, you think I went into battle with loose change in my pocket? <laughs> he's like, well, then I need you to blast open that Coca-Cola machine. And he just looks yeah. at it. And he's like, that's private property. <laughs> it's like, well, look, I, I need change to call the president please shoot the machine he's like all right but if you can't get the president on that phone you have to answer to the coca-cola company <laughs> the seriousness with which he says that i fucking love it. it's perfect yeah <laughs> uh so he he call, he ends up getting the uh the code and uh issues it's ope prior to this though we get some we get that great scene where um George C. Scott falls over when he's, t- he's doing his lines. Complete accident, but Kubrick left it in the movie because he maintained the character. It's hilarious. He's like, look at all that. And then he just slips right over to the big board. Like, he's just off his fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, acting, baby. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so the code is OPE. It's issued to the planes, the ones that had not been shot down, all radio in except for one, which got its, its radio busted in a, when it got shot. And they decided to go through with, with the op. And now everyone's, you know, what are we going to do? The president's like, well, you're just going to have to shoot the plane down. It's the only way. But as they start the bomb run, the damaged bomb bay doors won't open. Aircraft commander Major TJ King Kong goes down to the bomb bay to open them himself. He succeeds just as the plane reaches the target. They drop the bomb, and we get that iconic image of him waving his hat like he's riding a bull as the nuclear bomb hits Russia and triggers the doomsday machine. And that's it. The world's over. The war room's like, shit. (laughs) I guess we uh, better come up with a solution. And Dr. Strangelove recommends to the president that they should have a select group of about 200,000 people relocated into a deep mine shaft where the nuclear fallout can't reach them so they can repopulate the U.S., and they should have a ratio of 10 females to each male with women selected for their sexual characteristics, men selected on the basis of physical strength, intellectual capability, and importance in business and government. And of course, everyone in there is going to have to go because the new world's going to need leadership. Because <laughs> it worked out so well in the old one. And General Turgeson rants that the Soviets are going to create an even better bunker than the U.S. and says that America must not allow a mineshaft gap. The race never stops. And then we see the Soviet ambassador start taking pictures with a spy camera disguised as a watch. And we see Dr. Strangelove bolt out of his wheelchair and yell, Mein Fuhrer, I can walk! (laughs) Oh my god. And the film ends with nuclear explosions accompanied by the famous World War II song, We'll Meet Again, sung by Vera Lynn. Yes. Strangelove in a nutshell. It's a bonkers movie, but it is wildly entertaining. Extremely. And the ending is just, yeah, it, it kind of, uh, it, it does something that I love because you see so many endings that are 
whatever predictable or, or you know kind of lame or you're just kind of like ah you know that wasn't original well with dr strange love it's just this abrupt like in your face ending that yeah it just sticks with you it should be bleak as hell but because of the way kubrick decided to shoot this it was intended as a serious drama but kubrick realized that a lot of these scenes are just inherently funny so he had them act their craziest performances and told them the camera wasn't running and decided to use those as the actual film i mean that's incredible you couldn't do that shit now (laughs) not at all he did whatever the hell he wanted to. Whatever was, you know, good for the vision. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I, I think that if they had held these Oscars today, if this film had come out today, I think that it would be, well, I think it'd be better received at the Academy. I think it would have gotten a lot more attention. I think this is the yes. film that has probably had, this and Mary Poppins, the two that have had the most lasting legacy from the 64 Oscars. And, uh, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. I, I give it a nine out of ten. Yeah, I, I also give it a nine. It's it's very close, very it's close. So close. Uh, most of Kubrick's uh, work is is like that for me, right? It's really close to being just 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 perfect. Again, I this is just my second time watching this, but I'm gonna keep rewatching. I've owned it for the past few years, and I'm just gonna I don't keep digging it. into it. Yeah. Oh wow! Not How'd yet. you watch it? I borrowed my family's copy. I, okay. I, yeah, I, just, have... I just have it on DVD. Yeah, I don't have anything special. Just uh, just DVD. It has a couple interesting special features, but nothing crazy. I've been trying to find it on Blu-ray for a while. I like. I don't like just ordering films that I think of on the fly. I like hunting them down. I find that to be, you know, that's part. The hunt is the best part to me. I, to- I totally know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find it one day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's out there. <laughs> and I guess that takes us into this week in film. Yes, sir, it does. So, obviously, we talked about the death of Ennio Morricone, who died at 91 after suffering a fall, of all things. Yeah. That was a big shocker. He will be missed. Um, the trailer for HBO Max's new movie, An American Pickle, was launched, starring Seth Rogen in dual roles as a man uh, who fell into a pickle vat at the turn of the century. It preserved him perfectly. He's unearthed in New York 2020, where he meets his ancestor, who has done nothing with his life. And yeah, it looks very weird, <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm checking it. I'm going to check it out. I, I, whatever your opinion is, anyone can say what they want. I, I like Seth Rogen. Um, Me too. I'll, I'll always, since I saw, you know, super bad at age 12 and stuff like that, you know, 40 year old virgin and uh, knocked up. And, yeah. And he just carried on. I, I'll always appreciate his work. Yeah. Me too. So I think this will be interesting. HBO Max doing an original movie, so that means they're throwing their hat into the uh, film ra- film uh, streaming race now. I'm in. Why not? I wonder what the Russians are going to retaliate with, because we cannot have a streaming gap. There <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, shall not be a, a streaming gap. <laughs> uh, Halloween Kills has been delayed a full year. Regrettably, it's going to now be coming out in October 2021 with Halloween ends pushed to October 2022. There was a teaser trailer released that really got me pumped for the movie, and now I gotta wait a lot longer, regrettably. The teaser was just perfect. It was uh, the ending of Halloween, the last one, uh, with Lori and her granddaughter and her daughter driving away in the back of that truck, and you just see fire trucks pass her by, and Lori starts screaming, no, 
let it burn. <laughs> it's, oh God, it's so brilliant. And then Michael just turns to the camera. <laughs> oh, uh, can't kill the boogeyman. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It, to, to say that we are excited here at Filmgasm for this uh, new Halloween content is a severe understatement. Oh my God. Halloween. Oh, the the new of, Halloween was one of my absolute favorites of the decade. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is an astonishing film. Yeah. <sighs> Next up, Jude Law is going to be playing Captain Hook in Disney's live-action Peter Pan that they're currently developing. Right on. I can see that. Jude Law. Yeah, is, me too. Jude Law, Jude Law can do anything, man. He's great. I love Jude Law. But nobody will ever replace Dustin Hoffman. He's my favorite Hook. I agree. God damn, he transformed. I don't even see Dustin Hoffman in that movie. He's so <sighs> Captain Hook. It's perfect. Talk about talk about a guy who has been up for some fucking Oscars. My lord, Hoffman oh, yeah. will definitely come up in the future. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this was cool. Uh, Lee Winnell is going to be directing the Wolfman reboot, starring Ryan Gosling. That Blumhouse is working on. Couldn't get a better name. He proved himself with the Invisible Man, and uh, he's going to do fucking wonders with that. I can't wait. Oh man, yeah, I, yeah. This is like a this is like a dream, uh, for for movie fans, uh, for for us anyway. You know, to see a guy who's you know coming off of, I I adore Upgrade. I think Upgrade is fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and, you know, Invisible Man and Ryan Gosling, who's just been kind of doing all kinds of stuff throughout the past you know twenty years. This is this is really cool to see him put his foot into the horror um, circle. Yeah, 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 dude! I can't wait. And I think the idea was his. Like the story idea was Gosling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he came to them and was like, "I want to be Wolfman. Let's do this." Yes, yeah. (laughs) Gosling. Gosling's a student, a student of, student of film, and I think he, I think he genuinely wants part of his legacy to be remembered as horror. It's awesome. I'm excited to see where this goes. And uh, finally, and this was really cool. Uh, Stephen King's most recent novella collection, If It Bleeds, has been optioned for several movies. Uh, Rat, the story about a writer uh, suffering writer's block and making a deal with a weird ghostly rat. The story's been optioned by Ben Stiller. He's going to be directing and starring in it. Right on. That'll be cool. The Life of Chuck, which is a very cerebral uh, kind of shock to reality of like what exactly is our world kind of story has been optioned very appropriately by Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) Hell yes. Hell yes. He's going to get weird. And then finally, Mr. Harrigan's phone, a good old fashioned ghost story was optioned by Ryan Murphy with Blumhouse and Netflix. John Lee Hancock will be directing it. Cool. So good stuff to come on the King front. If it bleeds was a good read. I read, I read that uh, about a month ago and it was, it was awesome. The guy still has it. He's prolific, prolific as hell. I, I'm my favorite thing about it is the the stories have not suffered. Like the quality has not gone down. The work is like in many ways like he's releasing some of his best stuff lately. It's amazing. It's so it. cool. Love it. So that was nice. What are we doing next week? Next week is uh, I would say our biggest episode yet because it is. The first ever and one of only three films to ever win the big five. And that's 1934's It Happened One Night, directed by the great Frank Capra. 
super, super, super excited for that. Uh, I know you watched it fairly recently. Yeah, um, prior to the show, before we ever started this thing, I just watched it on a whim, and it was hilarious. Yeah, no, it's great. It's going to be very fun to rewatch. This is one that kind of swept up, you know, uh, the awards again. Won the big five. Only three films ever have done that. That one, one for the Cuckoo's Nest in 75, and Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Those will most certainly be brought from the Film Guys and Podcast on over to the Oscar Sunday podcast at some point. Yep. But we're definitely going to do um, It Happened One Night First. Uh, that'll be next week, man. Come back and join us. Um, I don't think it's on a streaming service right now, but it is on Prime for two ninety nine. So that's that's not that bad for like a classic film that had that made history. So yeah. if you want to watch that, uh, we would appreciate that. You come on back next week and hear what we got to say about it. Yes, indeed. And if you want a little bit more uh, nerd street credit for you, we're also doing on the Filmgasm podcast uh, Mystery Men on Wednesday. Yes. So, you can check that out. And uh, yeah, we'll have it happen one night for you on Sunday. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next Sunday.